Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marcellaro, and this week my guest is cosmologist Dr. Andrew Friedman. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to have you on the show because your resume shows your interests are just exactly the same as mine, and I have a whole bunch of questions to ask you. But first, for the listeners, I want to give you an introduction. Uh, Andrew, you are an astronomer, cosmologist, and data scientist. You're currently a National Science Foundation-funded assistant research scientist at the University of California, San Diego, the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences, where Dr. Keating is, by the way. He introduced us, said great things about you. You're also a research affiliate in the MIT Program for Science, Technology, and Society. I want to ask you about that. And you hold a Ph.D. in astronomy and astrophysics from Harvard. Cool. Thanks. But before we get into your research, I want to ask you, as I do for all the scientists, because it's always a fun story to hear, how did you get interested in physics and astronomy when you were younger? I think my story is similar to a lot of other people. Uh, it was definitely science fiction. And, you know, science fiction is the, the gateway drug to, uh, to science for oh, yeah. many people. Um, you know, whether you're talking about Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, you know, Science fiction books, science fiction comics. Uh, it's who are you know, some of your favorite authors? Yeah, so so science fiction authors that I read growing up, you know, started with uh, folks like Asimov and the Foundation series, and guys like uh, David Brin. And interestingly, I've ended up becoming friends with David Brin uh, later in life, and we've done a few public outreach events together at UC San Diego. And so it's it's definitely a fun kind of coming full circle and, you know, being able to uh, meet the people that I grew up reading. You, really, really. As, as I take it, you are one of those great scientists who does uh, public outreach, education, and um, stuff like that. And that's always fun and helpful to see that. I like that. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, I, I, I think that ultimately, you know, the the purpose of science is, is to be shared. It's It's not something that's just a pursuit for uh, people to kind of keep hidden away in the ivory tower. You know, science itself belongs to everybody. And, you know, I, I wish that more people were science literate. I wish more people were excited about science. You know, not everybody has the opportunity or the inclination to go into a career in science. But it, it, now more than ever, it's 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 so important for the, the mind-blowing stuff that's out there to be accessible and, and you know, understood by, by people and, and there's so much bang for your buck you can get just by reading a popular science book or watching, you know, a Nova episode um, on, on PBS. There, there's just so much amazing stuff that's out there that, that can be appreciated by, by almost anyone. And Star Talk. Yeah, absolutely. There, there, there are so many great podcasts and it's wonderful to be part of this one. And it, it, it's just uh, it, it, it is kind of a, a golden age for science communication in, in certain ways. There, there are more and more ways to, to be able to talk about these amazing things with people today. I think the trick is to be able to do it in a language and a style that people can appreciate because so many difficult concepts in climate science and astronomy and cosmology are require years to kind of get your head around and to be able to put that into a short descriptive show and explain people in a way they can relate to is a real talent. It's a real art. Well, it, it's a constant challenge for, for all of us who are interested in science communication because, as, as you say, you know, these topics can take, you know, decades to, to master. And, you know, it, it's it's very, very hard to 
especially when we're talking about things that people don't fully understand even at the forefront of the field. It's really, really challenging to communicate that, but we, we always try our best. You got your bachelor's degree at UC Berkeley. Were you um, planning at that time to forge right ahead to your PhD? Was that, was that the goal at the time, think, or what were you thinking? I think I knew pretty early on that I, that I wanted to pursue a career in science, um, and that yeah, pr- pretty early on, uh, grad school was definitely going to be um, on the agenda, but uh, I kind of bounced around. I, I guess one of the biggest challenges I've had, which is a good problem to have, is that I've always been interested in so many different things. So there was a time where I was going to triple major in, in physics, math, and art. And when I realized I would take about 12 years <laughs> to, to finish, you know, I, I switched up and I ended up doing physics and astronomy, which had a lot more overlap and was able to do that in a, in a reasonable amount of time. But as soon as I came, came to astronomy, which that, that, that was kind of added in the last couple of years of undergrad, at that, at that stage, I definitely knew that... Uh, I wanted to apply to, to graduate schools and to, you know, to, to do astronomy and astrophysics, and and that, that's what happened. And and I think that uh, it's it's been a really really wonderful ride. Did you have a professor at Harvard who inspired you? Somebody who was a name scientist who who believed in you and promoted you? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I've been been lucky to work with you know so many great mentors. You know, all the way from undergrad at Berkeley to to grad school at Harvard. Uh, my my undergrad advisor at Berkeley. Uh, Alex Filipenko, um, you know, he, he, he's a fantastic scientist and um, a huge uh, public communicator of science and great teacher. And, you know, he was one of my, my first mentors. He got me uh, involved in um, his supernova cosmology research group uh, where, where undergrads get to participate. And, you know, I discovered a few supernova explosions by, you know, looking at images of these exploding stars and other galaxies. And that was a really, really fun thing to do as as a as an undergrad, and uh, my, my PhD advisor uh, Bob Kirshner um, is 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 very much in, in a similar vein. You know, he's he's incredibly uh, gifted teacher. He's a really 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 funny guy, and and uh, you know I, I appreciate. But but both both Alex and Bob are kind of uh, outsized characters in the field of astronomy, and um, I've been really lucky to work with with both of them. Yeah, it's delightful when your thesis advisor has a sense of humor and. Uh is encouraging and loves your work and it makes my makes life really nice oh absolutely and you know and I, i've uh, you know just astronomy and and science physics all sorts of areas um you know from the life sciences to the physical sciences it's it's now nowadays so much more a team effort so you know you're talking about you know groups that can range from a few people to a few thousand people depending on your project so none of this is done alone and um it's it's really uh, it's really nice when you get a chance to work with with uh, good people who are great scientists, but also good human beings. And I've been very lucky because that doesn't always happen. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Who have been some of your physicist heroes of the past? Well, uh, th- there's no doubt that uh, you know Albert Einstein is a hero, and, and I'm not alone in that. But I have a particular uh, angle which we can talk a little bit more about later. Which is that uh, you know Einstein is sort of um, canonized in the in the scientific community um, for for good reason, but because of that, because he's put on such a, a pedestal, there are a lot of people who take delight in discussing the ways in which he was wrong. And it's true that he wasn't always right; that there there are some mistakes that he made. Um, but uh, when it comes to his his ideas about uh, 
quantum mechanics, the, the, the our most fundamental theory of the world at the subatomic level, there's often a story that's told about he was definitely wrong there and his uh, his sort of um, philo- philosophical nemesis, uh, the physicist uh, Niels Bohr, was right. Uh, but uh, the, the the interesting thing that our research is kind of probing into is how he might not have been wrong after all. The the case is not as open and shut as many people would say. What's always been fascinating to me is how far he leapt in special relativity and general relativity, just with pencil and paper and his intuitiveness. Absolutely. And then, and then what's amazing was is that he, he went to try to go to the next step, and he couldn't do it because uh, the next step was even farther beyond general relativity. And yeah. It's taken 50 years for scientists to get their heads around the next step. Yeah, we're we're still not there, and the uh, m- many of the the ideas that he he left us um, have have helped us in that direction. But the fact that you know we don't have a theory uh, even today that combines his theory of gravity, general relativity, with with quantum theory, you know, our theory of the subatomic world, it, it proves how hard the problem was. And it's no yeah. shame Einstein that he, he couldn't solve it. But the, the the thing that I find interesting is that some of the hanging threads where he raised some really important points, they might actually help us quite a lot in eventually achieving that goal of a unified theory of physics that kind of takes us to the, the next level. But yeah. uh, he, yeah. he definitely, he, even in the areas where he was wrong, he was usefully and interestingly wrong. And the, 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 uh, one of the, the, the fun insults that, that, uh, physicists uh, might say to each other when they're trying to be as dismissive as possible of somebody is they say, that's not even wrong. And oh, who um, was that? Was that Dirac? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It might have been it, it might have been Dirac. It might have been Fermi. Um, but uh, don't quote me on that for sure. But but um, there, there's nobody who would have ever accused Einstein of not not even being wrong, even in the places where he was wrong. It's led to um, thought provoking discussions um, that have lasted for decades, um, just trying to understand the, the real core issues. Yeah, I've had uh, some guests on the show who've been inspired by physicists they had a chance to train under. I think Dr. Friedman, who was on the show recently, actually had brushed shoulders with Richard Feynman at Caltech. Yeah. And talked about the Red Book and inspiring lectures. And boy, when somebody like that's around, you just get really cranked up. He's one of my heroes. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember uh, reading some of Feynman's memoirs and, and the Feynman lectures on physics, um, you know, in, in high school and undergrad. And, you know, he, he was definitely one of those luminary figures as well that just had a, um, a knack for thinking a few decades beyond everybody else. Well, it seems like we've got to a logical break here. In the second half of the show, I want to ask you about uh, your PhD thesis, Type 1A supernova, and a whole bunch of other interesting questions. But it's a little bit early. Let's just take a break now sure. and uh, do our commercial break, and then when we come back, well, I have a whole bunch of interesting questions to ask you. Folks, sure. I'm, I'm chatting with uh, cosmologist Andrew Friedman. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. 
or you can just enter MacObserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMOs, daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. Thanks, Kelly. We're back. I'm chatting with cosmologist Andrew Friedman. So a big part of the second half of the show is going to be about supernovas, type 1A specifically, that are standard candles, more or less. You worked on your PhD thesis with uh, infrared light curves of supernova. Why infrared? Oh, well, let's, let's back up a second, back up. Tell, tell us about what a supernova is. Tell us about why type 1A supernovas are important. And then tell us why you were looking at them in the infrared instead of visible, or in addition to visible. Sure. So uh, the, the, one of the goals in cosmology, my field, is to learn about the entire history of the universe. And we, we've known since the 1930s, uh, the work of Edwin Hubble and others, that the universe is expanding. So the universe is filled with um, billions and billions of galaxies, each of which composed of billions and billions of stars, and those galaxies... Um, for the most part, are all moving away from one another. And one of the things we want to know is how long has that been going on? How fast has it been going? Um, is the universe accelerating in its expansion? Is it decelerating? Uh, what's going on with that? And it turns out that um, every once in a while, um, an individual star in a galaxy uh, will, will actually explode. And there are a few different ways that can happen. Uh, but the specific kind that are most interesting for cosmology are so-called type 1a supernovae. So um, they, they happen when there, there is a white dwarf star, which is an, an old remnant. Our, our sun will eventually become a white dwarf star. But um, a white dwarf star is no longer um, undergoing fusion in its core to hold it up against gravity. And if that white dwarf lives in a binary system with another star, um, either by merging or creating matter from the companion star, that white dwarf star can get up to a certain mass limit um, and quantum mechanics tells us that it can't exceed this limit. It's the so-called Chandrasekhar limit. And at that point, the star will undergo an explosion. And this explosion is useful for cosmology because it can be so bright that it can you know, essentially outshine all the other stars in that galaxy. And then we can see that galaxy really, really far away. But one of the key things in astronomy is if you want to know how far away something is, it's a really hard problem. So what would be really helpful is if there was sort of a standard light bulb where you knew, let's say, it was 100 watts. And then uh, because, you know, we know this, then you can figure out by how bright it appears how far away it actually is. And it turns out that type 1a supernovae are so-called standard candles in that sense. Um, they're almost um, all very, very, very close to each other in the same intrinsic brightness. Uh, they're not really perfectly, and there's a lot of work that has to be done to standardize them. But the point is that they give us a tool to estimate the distances to other galaxies. And, and the rate of expansion. That, yes. And, and when, you, when you have that tool, you can, you can measure cosmic expansion because, um, you know, when we see this exploding star, we're not seeing it now. We're seeing it as it was when the light left millions or, or billions of years ago. And so if you look at a bunch of different supernovae in different galaxies, every single one of them essentially gives you a snapshot at a, at a different time in the history of the universe 
that allows you to make a movie of the cosmic expansion history. And getting to your question about um, observing it at infrared wavelengths instead of optical wavelengths, most of supernova cosmology um, has traditionally been done at optical wavelengths because that's where the telescopes and detectors have been most mature for the longest amount of time. And in fact, the, the 2011 Physics Nobel Prize was awarded for um, the discovery that the expansion of the universe it actually seems to be speeding up and accelerating. And this, this was due to observations of type 1a supernovae at, at optical wavelengths. And, you know, an, an interesting kind of story there is that the, 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 of the, the, the three people who won the Nobel Prize for this, um, two of them, Adam Rees and Brian Schmidt, were actually PhD students in the 1990s um, of my own PhD advisor, Bob Kirshner, at Harvard. And so, so I, you know, I know all these people and it's, you know, I wasn't really part of the discovery, but um, it was definitely fun to kind of be, be part of that and to, to see um, to see this happen. But uh, the, the next generation in, involves trying to make the measurements even more precisely and to, act, to figure out um, not only is the expansion accelerating, but is, is the rate of expansion changing over time? And that, that's a really hard measurement to make. And infrared observations help you in the following ways because one of the big nemesis of, of astronomy is dust that gets in the way of everything. And if there's dust in the way of your supernova, it'll make it appear dimmer and further away than it really is. And so it, basically what it does is it screws with that particular you know frame in the movie of cosmos. Uh, now I understand. Infrared observations, light, uh, when, it, when it gets to longer wavelengths, penetrates through dust much more easily. And um, in addition, um, infrared explosions actually are... Um, better standard candles the the um from object to object an infrared explosion is is very close to the same brightness as another one whereas there's a little bit more spread at, at optical wavelengths so so you went on two fronts they're better standard candles so you get more precise distances and more accurate distances that way and then um you get rid of one of the the worst systematic errors that affect your distance measurements um you 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 alleviate it considerably by by using infrared observations. But this is something that's only been possible in the last few decades as the, the detector technology has developed. Um, and, um, you know, th th there are significant challenges for, for, doing, um, for doing this because you can observe nearby ones from the ground where there, there are certain little windows in the atmosphere where you can place your, your observational filters so that you can um, see through um, the, the, where the sky is transparent at infrared wavelengths. But if you want to observe objects that are really far away, you have to go into space. And in fact, uh, our, our group is using the Hubble Space Telescope currently to observe, um, you know, about 50 um, so-called high redshift, you know, very, very far away type 1a supernovae uh, at, at infrared wavelengths. And infrared observations are going to become um, a huge part of the future. Uh, we hope that uh, a NASA mission called WFIRST will eventually fly. And uh, it'll be an infrared space telescope, and, and one of its main goals will be to map cosmic expansion history to look for possible um, time variation, uh, which would, would indicate new physics that, uh, you know, as, as this relates back to Einstein, um, Einstein himself, and he, he, when he was interpreting his equations for general relativity, he thought that, uh, you know, based on philosophical biases, that the universe should be static. Right. That it should be expanding or contracting. And so he put a term into his equations called the cosmological constant, which itself was designed to counteract um, 
the gravitational contraction. That, that was the mistake you were talking about in the first half of the show. That that was that was that was one of the the the, the mistakes that uh, uh, he was known for, and the th- this this is a, this is a, a mistake that he called perhaps one of the greatest blunders of his career. But it turns out that um, he, um, even though he introduced it for the wrong reasons, um, it turned out that the the universe actually was not static, um, but because of this evidence for cosmic acceleration. Einstein's cosmological constant can serve that same purpose in our modern understanding. So, so we actually think um, he was wrong about why he introduced it, but he was right about it in hindsight. We, so that the um, the leading explanation for cosmic acceleration is something like Einstein's cosmological constant. But if it turns out that the rate of expansion and acceleration is varying in time then it would need to be something different than Einstein's cosmological constant. So, right, because that was just a simple rate of expansion and not an acceleration. Well, imagine that the acceleration changed as well. Right, um, right, right, right. You know, so, so like, when, when you're driving in your car, you know, if, if, you, if you change the pressure of the foot on the pedal, you change the rate of acceleration. And so we're, right. we're trying to figure out if the universe is doing that, too. And Do we have any notion about what might be causing that re- expansion? We, we pressure it, is it? it is one of the biggest mysteries of, of theoretical physics right because of that we, we yeah. call it dark energy so whenever you hear the word dark it is a uh, an indicator that we we don't know what we're talking about yet um, dark, so dark energy is the name of the hypothetical um, field or uh, you know force that that is causing cosmic uh, acceleration and expansion it, it acts like a repulsive gravitational force on large scales it's the kind of thing that even as the universe expands um, the strength of it doesn't dilute um, whereas um, the strength of gravity does dilute when things get further away from one another so um, it's it's interesting in that way some people have speculated that it has to do with something related to the 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 quantum mechanical nature of the vacuum of of space um, and time itself but when you do a, a standard calculation in quantum field theory and you try to predict how big this cosmological constant should be it ends up being 120 orders of magnitude larger than the value we actually observe and when that happens that's 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 perhaps the wrongest prediction in the history of science <laughs> when that happens I've seen that number that tells you that there is a huge gap in 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 our understanding and and possibly um, we need a theory that merges quantum mechanics and general relativity together, quantum gravity, um, in order to really understand that. Let me jump ahead uh, a couple questions because you were on a track with something that I'm intrigued about. And sure. then we'll come back to the type 1a one, one supernovas. So quantum entanglement, mm-hmm. the well-known spooky action at a distance where two in-phase photons can connect with each other over a vast distance instantaneously. I won't go into any more details, but it gets a little dicey. But this interaction has been shown to be almost perfectly fast, instantaneous. It does not travel at the speed of light. As far as we can tell, the the interaction and quantum entanglement is instantaneous. Is there any notion or thought that there is a substrate in which quantum entanglement lives, 
on top of which space-time resides? Just a yeah, wacko so, question. No, no, not 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 at all. So so um, the, the 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 projects that I'm working on uh, today have to do with uh, new experiments that use cosmology to try to test something about quantum entanglement, and mm. uh, for for various reasons, uh, we we decided to do an experiment where we actually uh, choose our measurements about how to measure pairs of entangled particles, not using anything on Earth, but using light from distant galaxies that's been traveling to us for billions of years. You know, and that's 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 kind of a longer story, but um, and and it was the subject of a recent uh, PBS Nova documentary called uh, Einstein's Quantum Riddle, and uh, describing our so-called uh, cosmic bell test experiment. But, you know, getting, getting back to, you know, your question about entanglement, um, the it, it, it's extremely mysterious, you know, so you have this phenomenon where you have a pair of, of particles, let's say photons, particles of light, and w- what happens is that if you send one off to one observer and you send off, one off to another observer, um, as soon as, let's say, the, the first observer, Alice, measures something about her entangled particle, she instantly knows something about a future measurement on Bob's half. Now, initially, people were concerned that this might allow you to send messages faster than the speed of light. And Einstein himself was very, very skeptical of entanglement um, for for this reason. We now know that you can't actually cheat relativity this way because, (coughs) excuse me, when you make a measurement on one of the entangled particles, let's say you're measuring uh, a property like its polarization, uh, wh- whether it's polarized in the horizontal or vertical direction. In, in quantum mechanics, uh, when that particle is on its way to Alice, it's it's in a so-called superposition of horizontal and vertical. There's a 50-50 chance that you'll measure horizontal or vertical. Um, it's like Schrodinger's for, cat. It's both dead and alive. Yeah. And, and in order for her to actually use that to, to send a message to Bob she would have to be able to know in advance better than 50-50 what's, what's going to happen. And uh, because she can't do that, the best she could do is send a message to Bob that's, that's a random string of ones and zeros, which essentially contains no information. So even though there is spooky something going on, we think, it's not something that, that, that violates the, the letter of, of Einstein's theory of relativity. Does it um, suggest that there's some sort of substrate medium through which the interaction is propagated? It's 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 definitely something people have speculated about. So, uh, one of the uh, interesting ideas that's being uh, talked about in theoretical physics today is the idea that um, entanglement itself might actually be more fundamental uh, than even things like space and time itself. Mm-hmm. So, it might be the case that... Um, space and time are actually built up out of entanglement. And so, so in general relativity, we have the concept of, of a wormhole, which has been popularized quite a lot in science fiction, of this sort of shortcut between two locations in space and time. And some people are thinking about entangled particles themselves as being connected by a quantum type of wormhole that we don't know how to fully describe theoretically yet, but... That, that, that helps us understand why something you do very, very far away can seem to affect something on the other part, you know, the other half of the entangled particle pair. Okay. And so, right. so it may be the case that there are, <coughs> excuse me, um, it may be the case that there are um, threads that, that connect 
um, every pair of entangled uh, regions to one another. It doesn't even need to be particles. Um, when, when it comes comes down to it, entanglement is really just this question of, let's say you have two, two places, two regions. Um, are they independent of each other or not? In classical physics, it's possible for, for those things to be independent of one another in the sense that nothing I do over here can give me any information about the other thing over there. But especially when you, when you, when you include gravity, it might not actually be possible for, for, for regions in space and time to be independent of each other in that way. So in, in this sort of interesting theoretical picture, it's possible that space and time might be built up out of entanglement uh, by where regions that are highly entangled, um, you know, in, in, in this sort of uh, maybe the substrate layer you're talking about, um, end up corresponding to locations in space that are close together and regions that are um, very, very, very close to unentangled correspond to regions of space uh, and time that are far away from each other. So Interesting. the, the, in, in the abstract picture of this, this sort of network of entanglement connections that might be underlying a new theory of physics beyond quantum mechanics and, re- and general relativity um, it, it might be that entanglement itself is not is not a quantum only phenomenon, but it is, is even more fundamental than than quantum mechanics. Okay. And so th- th- there might indeed be uh, a network um, of, of connections, you know, that that uh, um, underlie this in in a, in, a, in an abstract space that's more fundamental in space and time. Okay, so we're going to have to leave that there because I have so many more questions to ask you. Sure. So let's uh, let's let's move on. All right, so your bio says that you work with several theoretical and observational cosmology projects to devise and implement experiments that leverage cosmology to help test fundamental physics. What does that involve? How do those two relate? So the the supernova cosmology um, project that I already described, where we're using you know ground-based observations and space-based observations of exploding stars um, in order to... Uh, measure the expansion history of the universe, uh, to, to learn what might be causing cosmic acceleration. Um, that, that's, that's a way of probing fundamental physics uh, that, that fundamentally involves using cosmology. It's not something that uh, we're doing something in a laboratory. We're using the universe itself as a laboratory. And uh, that, that's kind of where, where I started. And the, you know, in, the, in the past uh, six plus years, um, I've been working on trying to learn something about quantum entanglement by leveraging cosmology. And so the, uh, in a typical entanglement experiment, um, you send a pair of particles off to two distant observers, and they each choose from, let's say, one of two possible measurement settings. So, for example, maybe they're measuring the polarization of a pair of polarization-entangled photons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, maybe Alice on one side, Bob on the other, each have something that's very much like a pair of polarized sunglasses, where depending on the angle that you're oriented at, um, it changes the probability of whether the photon will uh, get absorbed in, in, in the glasses or whether it'll pass through and then, let's say, get detected by some kind of a photon counter or, or a camera. And on, on, on either side in, the, in these experiments, let's say Alice does, you know, a, a million measurements, her measurement outcomes look random, like either it goes through or it doesn't. Um, and like she, she can she can, let's say, randomly choose whether or not to have her polarizing filter in one direction or another. If, if Bob does the same thing on his side, he'll he'll get what looks like a random sequence of outcomes. 
But when they later compare them, they compare notes, the, the outcomes are correlated in a way that uh, is consistent with quantum mechanics, but it's really hard to explain in a classical physics type world how those correlations could, could possibly emerge. Are you and, suggesting that the structure of quantum mechanics somehow creates this mysterious dark energy that relates to the cosmology? Well, so 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 we're 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 kind of starting um, a few steps back. So, uh, in entanglement itself, I think that there, there there's a strong possibility that it's going to be a key part of any explanation of a new theory of physics that goes beyond quantum mechanics and relativity. And you know, people often call deterministic, that deterministic, perhaps. Uh, Deterministic substrate to the to the statistical quantum mechanics that lives above it, maybe, but, maybe, maybe. Yeah. So, so, so that 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 that's that's another way in which, um, you know, I, Einstein wanted the world to be more like classical physics. He wanted it to be deterministic. God doesn't play dice with the universe. Right? The classic comment. Um, and and he he wanted the, the real world to exist independent of observation. He wanted things to only um, interact when they touch each other or when they send messages that's slower than the speed of light. And the the interesting thing is that this is related to, to entanglement because if you build a, a worldview that's based on the the concept of so-called local realism that has those those premises, and also um, key to what we're interested in, it has the premise that both Alice and Bob can freely choose what to measure. Uh, you know the questions they're asking the entangled particles in an experiment. If you make if you make those assumptions, you get a famous theorem in physics called Bell's theorem, which basically says that Einstein's explanation, um, local realism, for you know the way he wanted the world to be, can't possibly work to explain the results of entanglement tests. Um, and many people, because we've done these entanglement experiments and we see these correlations, which are consistent with quantum mechanics, have long assumed that Einstein was wrong, and the the uh, the thing that, that we're kind of interested in is trying to ask whether or not there are any loopholes that would actually allow Einstein to still be right. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to design experiments that would allow us to close these loopholes. So in 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 it's kind of a win win in the following sense: if we do an experiment and we we close the loophole, um, that would allow you know a a an explanation like Einstein wanted. Um, we're, we're, we're kind of pushing that, that possibility of some alternative to quantum mechanics from explaining entanglement into a further corner. And one of the loopholes which um, John Bell, the physicist who came up with Bell's theorem, was interested in, um, and that he, that he sort of highlighted that eventually has now only really become to be tested experimentally in the past few years, has to do with this question of whether or not Alice and Bob, the experimenters in, in a test, really can make their choices freely. It turns out that if they don't make their choices freely, then it is possible for a, a deterministic explanation um, for entanglement to, to work. So what we tried to do is instead of letting anything on Earth make the choices, we, we outsource that to the universe and we let the universe decide how to make the measurements. Basically, we pointed telescopes up at distant galaxies called quasars. And we use the color of the light from the quasars kind of like a random number generator to make the choices in our quantum experiment in real time. So we're, we're basically saying um, that... That was the paper I was going to ask you about. That's the one I picked out that I thought was kind of cool. 
Yeah, thank, thank you. Astronomical Rishmi. random numbers for quantum foundation experiments. Cool. Yes. So, you know, we, 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 we developed a method to turn, you know, starlight or light from galaxies into random numbers. And basically uh, what we can do is if we do this experiment, which we did in 2018, and we, we use choices from astronomical sources that, that are coming from a, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then we do the experiment with entangled particles on Earth and use the starlight to choose how we measure the entangled particles, if we see these correlations that exceed the limit that would be allowed in a, in a theory like Einstein wanted to be true, we can't totally rule out that theory from, from explaining the results. But we can say that if relativity is correct, that theory would have had to have um, had a mechanism in place billions and billions of years ago. So we can kind of push far back into space and time any place where a non-quantum explanation like Einstein wanted to be true, a local realistic explanation for entanglement could be viable. And so when we did this in, in our 2018 experiment uh, in the Canary Islands, we, um, we used a pair of really big telescopes, three and four meter class telescopes, and we observed uh, quasars, distant galaxies where... Um, one of them, its light was, was on its way for about 8 billion years and the other for a little more than 12 billion years. So we can push back any non-quantum explanation for entanglement to have happened no more recently than 8 billion years ago. And that's that's orders of magnitude beyond anything that had been done before. And we can push into into a really, really increasingly tiny corner of space-time the, the sort of last refuge for these alternative theories given the assumptions that we made. Okay, so we have uh, not too many minutes left, and I want to have just uh, one ask you one more question before we run out of time. Sure. Uh, One of the things that um, I teach in a class, uh, philosophy class I teach, um, is is that we could be in a simulation. Sure. There's a limit to the granularity of space. It's the Planck length, about ten to the minus thirty-five meters, and then there's the Higgs field that makes objects appear to have mass, even though they don't have real mass as we think of it when you bang on a table. So objects act as if they have mass, and there's a, there's a granularity. Does that suggest to you that there is some sort of substrate simulation that we live in? Uh, it, uh, that's a really, really excellent question, and it, it's a question that uh, you know, physicists and philosophers and computer scientists um, are, are definitely taking seriously. It's, it's a very, very difficult question to test, uh, but it, it's certainly fun to, to speculate about. And so some people have, have pointed out what, what you point out, which is that it's kind of interesting that let's say there actually is a a, a finite um, length scale and space spatial scale in the universe. Perhaps that could indicate that there's something digital about our universe mm-hmm. uh, that, that is reminiscent of uh, digital um, simulations. Maybe... Um, you know, you can't just keep going down to smaller and smaller scales indefinitely. Um, and interestingly, um, in, in quantum mechanics, the um, in one of the standard interpretations of quantum mechanics, uh, an object's state is sort of indefinite <clears throat> in, until it's actually observed. And the one one could could uh, make an interesting speculative argument that. One could consider. Let's let's assume that there, that we are in a simulation and that the simulation is 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 resource limited. Uh, maybe 
the simulation is able to actually save on computational costs by only rendering things uh, when when they're being observed or, or interacted with by the participants. Now, that, that's an interesting sort of science fiction scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that I'm, I'm not saying that I believe it to be true. I think that um, it would be very, very interesting and would open up some, some very, very interesting possibilities for the totality of existence if we lived inside of a simulation. And, um, you know, fr- from, from a science fiction perspective, it, it, it would mean possibly that there, there's more to this world than, than what we see. And that, you know, when, when we die, there's something else. We wake up from the simulation like inside of the Matrix. And, you know, there, there are a lot of people who find that idea interesting and, and um, comforting. And it would be very cool if that was true. I don't know if it's true. Uh, one of the, the big challenges is, is that it might not be possible from within the simulation to um, do any experiment that would allow you to definitively uh, determine that you are, in fact, inside of a simulation. And, uh, you know, so, so it, it's, it's an interesting question. But it could be related to that mathematical law by that mathematician. What was that? Godel's theorem? Godel's theorem. Is that related to Godel's theorem, perhaps? Yeah, so, so Godel's theorem says that uh, within certain mathematical formal systems, there are certain statements that might be true, but unprovable mm-hmm. as, as true from within that system. And, right. and it, basi- it basically has to do with, with the, the fact that uh, um, th- there are, um, in, in a system with a finite uh, amount of information built into the assumptions of that system, um, you, 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 there's no such thing as a free lunch. You, you can't uh, derive uh, theorems that are um, theorems that extend beyond the power of the assumptions that you start with right. in that system. And so uh, it's possible that the, the with you know to make a very loose analogy in the context of our universe, the the statement you know if I if I was to say you know here's a theorem we live in a simulation, it's possible that the the information that's built into the assumptions that we have access to um, can't actually prove that as a theorem <laughs> in the context of, of uh, okay. And so, so we, we uh, it might be one of those questions where uh, um, we, we, if we live in a simulation, we might never know until we reach the end of the game. All right. Right. Well, we are out of time. Um, I noticed from your bio that one of the things you focus on is the philosophy of cosmology. And as we said in the first segment, uh, education outreach, I'd love to have you back to talk about this, those subjects That'd be great. Uh, in the future. But uh, for now, we're going to have to bring it to a close. This has been right. a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Andrew, for joining me on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun and very, very interesting and challenging questions about the universe. You explained them beautifully. I, so I did my best. Tell the listeners how you can be contacted if, you, if they want to contact you. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm at uh, Andy Friedman 2 uh, on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, I, I hope that you guys enjoy thinking about this stuff. It's certainly uh, a lot of fun to think about ridiculous and crazy things for a living, and I feel really lucky to be able to do it. Yeah, being able to do something that you love doing is a, is a real bonus in life. You love Absolutely. your job. I wish more and more people had the opportunities that, that I've had. I've been incredibly lucky. Indeed. And you're researching stuff that's a lot of fun and timely and, and interests people a lot, so... Good luck with your research and carry on, sir, and we'll have you back to talk more about philosophy of cosmology. That would be great. 
So listeners, I'm really glad you came by, and I hope you enjoyed the show. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.